You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 7 of Turning to the Mystics, where we've been turning to the German mystic Meister Eckhart. And this is part two of our question and response session. We had so many questions come in this season, more than we've ever had, um, and we're so grateful for that. We've read all the questions and we've put them into themes. And unfortunately, we won't be able to address every question, but we have read every question And they're such a helpful grounding for us as we continue forward with the podcast. So I'm here with Jim, Corey in the background. And uh, Jim, we're going to ask you to respond to some more questions. Yes, yes, of course. So uh, we're going to start with the theme of the ground and the powers. And so the first question is from Rebecca. And she asks, how did the powers become exiled from the ground? Or is that part of the mystery that we will only understand once the powers are fully reunited with the ground? Yes. Uh, Here's the kind of classic uh, Christian way of understanding this mystery about the estrangement. Like, where did the estrangement come from? Like, how did this happen? And Eckhart goes into this and looks at this. Is that uh, God's ground is our ground. Our ground is God's ground. The, the mystery of the unit, the mystery of the person, this transsubjective mystery of the person. Then we're given a human nature that's empowered by God to realize that, which is the soul or the interiority of the self. And the powers of the soul, the intellect, the memory, and the will, the higher powers, so the thinking self and all that it thinks, remembering self all that remembers, the desiring self and all that it desires. And then the feelings self and all that it feels. And then the somatic self, the bodily self, and so on. So these are the powers of the soul. So in the mythic story of the garden of Eden, is a mythic poetic story, that the, and for Adam and Eve, their nature, the powers of their soul were translucent to the ground. And as it shined out through, they saw the divinity in the earth and each other and God and, and so on. And so they were created by God in the image and likeness of God. And it shined out through the powers translucent to the ground. But the whole mystery of the fall is trying to be like God without God. <clears throat> this trying to be like God without God is like an estranged state that we find ourselves in. And it's almost, it isn't as if there was some kind of sin and we're, and we're carried on uh, our original parents like some blight that we deal with that. It isn't, it's like a poetic way of understanding what our situation is. And our situation is, is where we start, is that our powers are estranged from the ground. That is to say, not just are our powers estranged at the psychological level of psychological symptoms like depression, anxiety, addiction. I mean, there's all that healing of the ego in the ego. But rather, the, the powers of the soul are, are living in an exiled, traumatized state 
of living in an underlying habitual state of the ground, shining out through the powers, empowering them to say yes to that, and so on. So that's the poetry or the poetics of the origin. And so Eckhart would say, really, is that the, the issue here is not how do we understand it, but rather, since this is our situation, what's our response to it, which are the teachings. You know, Karl Barth, the great evangelical Protestant theologian, said once that he was being interviewed by a somewhat cynical interviewer, questioning him about Scripture. And she asked Karl Barth, she says, you don't honestly think, do you, that a snake talked to Adam and Eve, to Eve in the garden? And Karl Barth says, well, I don't know if the deep question is whether or not the snake actually talked. I think what matters is what the snake said. That's the point, because it's a poetic, metaphorical way of getting at the condition of where we find ourselves, strangely exiled from the very foundations of ourselves. And our response, with God's grace, is to be liberated from it, which is the walk through Jesus and through faith. And Next question is from Cheryl, and she asks, in session three, Jim says that our powers are estranged from the ground. I don't understand how that is possible if the ground of God permeates all of us and the powers are part of who we are as human beings. Would you please explain what that means? Yes, I, I think that the tradition would put it this way, Eckhart would say it this way. We're, we're not estranged from the ground in the, in the order of God's generosity being poured out and giving itself to us unexplainably forever. Also, we're not estranged from the ground ontologically in our being. We're not estranged from the ground. The issue is the estrangement has to do with the extent to which we're aware of that or not. And that's what's estranged. And it's the mystery of evil, the mystery of the origins of evil, is one way of saying, and again, it's, it's a mystery people understand in different ways, just as where we are, is that the... Here we are in this manifestation of God's love. But so God gives us the capacity to recognize it, which is religious experience. We're awakened. Then in being awakened to it, then we're given the freedom to, to say yes or no to it because love is always offered. It's never imposed. See, if there's no estrangement from the ground, everything is all preset from the beginning. It's just nothing but the ground in all directions and we're just living out the motions of something, but we have a life to live. And the life is lived in the, in the mystery of the precariousness of a certain kind of autonomy. But hidden down in the depths of the exile is the invincible ground that's sustaining us in the exile and guiding us and illuminating us and inspiring us to be liberated from its hold on us, which is the path. It's Jesus, it's like metanoia, you know, conversion to a this deep response, this deep yes to God, yes to us. Live day by day. A question from Nancy. My question is, does Meister Eckhart distinguish what is the soul from the ground, from the person experiencing the powers? To clarify, I understand the ground to be God in the person, but what is the soul? Who is the person who is so affected by the powers? I wondered about the exchange of God or ground with the soul with the person under the influence of the powers. 
you have to perfectly just keep sitting with this. And um, little by little, you can see how the subtlety of it, how Eckhart sorts out, like the figure out ability of it all. To, we have to poetically sit with it. This would be one way again of understanding it. Let's say, and I said this in the talks, by the way, that the ground of this God is a, is a ground, our ground is God's ground. And the way I was trained in the monastery is that that oneness in the ground is the person that we are. As, as a kapax dei, as a capacity for God. Because that ground needs to be actualized by living it. And so our soul is the human nature through which we're empowered to live it. Because the soul is the interiority of ourself. Now another traditional insight about this is that insight is the soul has two faces. One face of the soul faces outward which is the ways we interrelate to the world, nature, other people, and so on. And the other face of the soul faces God. So the soul that faces outward, is, it, it internalizes the outer world and responds to it. So the outer layers of the soul are our internalized patterns that we've internalized through our parents, through our past, through our assumptions, and all of it. But then we realize that if we're living at that level, we're just living kind of at the surface of ourselves. There's something deeper. So then uh, we have to go into more into the interiority of ourself to find that place of the soul that opens out upon, which is the per which opens out upon the person that we are on the ground of the oneness. Of the and then realizing it as an insight, we listen to Eckhart and it's beautiful, and we're touched by the beauty of it, which is the intuitive resonance with it. Like, this is beautiful, and I can't explain it, but something tells me this is true, this is true. So then I say, in realizing that it is true, how can I free myself from what hinders me from living in an habitual state of oneness with what we know is true, which is detachment? I, I know it's true, I know it's true, but there are patterns in my mind and heart where I'm attached to conditioned states as having the final say in who I am. I'm attached to my conclusions, my belief systems, my assumptions, my whatever. And so how can I, what is the path of being, being delivered from being so enveloped in these internalized patterns that something of this like can shine through, which he means by the birth of the word in the soul that as I start to be unraveled from the claim that these internalized condition states make on me, the ground of me and the ground of God is one, the person starts shining through the powers of my soul as a state of clarity or a state of joy or a state of gratitude or a state of spiritual understanding and so on. That'd be one way to sit with it. So this next question is from Rosalie. She says, the question I have is about infinite generosity that completely permeates cause and effect. I'm trying to learn how to apply this beautiful thought to my life. Here is a story of cause and effect from my life recently. I drove eight hours with my husband to visit my sister who was dying. After three days, I needed to return home as I had a medical appointment, which I had been waiting to have for months. When I went home for the appointment, I was told that there was nothing they could do for me. Two days later, my sister passed and I was not there. 
How can I view the infinite generosity permeating this event of cause and effect? This is one way that helps me to understand it. See, if we, if we look at your story, this person's story, in the actual experience, what it's like, it's hard to find the generosity. You know, her sister's dying, had to go turn back to go to her own doctor, the doctor can't help her. And I, like, where's the generosity like this? So there's another way of looking at it. It could be, you know what, yes, uh, life has, comes in waves of difficulties and disappointments. Because of death, uh, it's a temporary arrangement. But very, very soon now, we won't even be here. They say the only downside about heaven is only the dead need apply. And uh, so we're, we're, we're here kind of in, a, uh, in the upheavals and unforeseeability of conditioned states. And as we get older, illness and death and so on. But here's the thing. The very fact you wanted to go see your sister, the very fact your husband was with you, the very fact you're touched by the teachings of Eckhart, as a very fact, there's a certain, this is why I say God is a presence that protects us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things. It's sensing that, that it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy. And a matter of fact, when we're in the throes of hardship, it's hard to see it. But when we look back at our life, of what we know today about patience or humility or gratitude, at least for me, I think a lot of people I would see in therapy, a lot of it was given to us in moments of difficulty. A lot of it came to us when we when we had lost our way. A lot of it came to us when we didn't know how to move on. And uh, in providential unfoldings, we were, there was a granting of a taste of something. It's always there. So it's challenging when we're shooting the rapids and we're in the midst of hardship. It's hard to see this because we're just human. But if we trust and just this idea of detachment, just breathing into it, like the spaciousness of it all, like this, then we can start to see this benevolence that permeates unforeseeability and ragged edges and be like the peace that surpasses understanding. Because it's the peace of God that isn't dependent on how anything turns out but rather it's the peace on which everything depends and we can learn to live by it like this. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Jim. Yeah, it's hard to feel that in circumstances that sound so exhausting and challenging and sad, but yes. Another thing that I think too when we're on this path and we're in the midst, let's say we're being overwhelmed by it. Say we're on this path, we're learning the way and we, we realize we're getting very reactive and upset in a sense, we can get to a place where we know we're having an episode. See? This, this too shall pass. And this is really is sad, so I need to scream or cry or walk around or pound on the table or do what I need to do. This too shall pass. But I know in my heart, I can't feel it. But I know I'm being unexplainably sustained in the midst of the hurting things. And that's the way we can be at peace in the, see what Jesus says, my peace I give you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. So the peace that the world gives is the ability to live in conditions conducive to peace. The peace that Jesus gives is a peace that's not dependent on conditions conducive to peace, which is the mystery of the cross. And I think this is where Eckhart is trying to help us find our way. Another question along those lines comes from Cheryl. When you say that God is the ground of everything, how can that be? Is God the ground 
of the cancer cell that kills the 20-year-old woman on the verge of starting out her own life? Is God the ground of the genetic anomaly that creates terrible problems for some people? Would you be able to help me wrap my mind around this or let me know how you see it? First of all, we could say that in some sense, God is the ground of phenomena, the unfolding of phenomena. Like animals right now all over the world are right now are being born. They're living their life. And all over the world right now, animals are dying. And God's the ground. Someone once said, uh, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. You know, they neither gather into barns and so on and so on. But God, your Father takes care of them. And someone said, yes, but many birds freeze to death and many birds starve to death. And he says that's true because unexplainably taking care of them as they freeze to death and as they starve to death. So the, God is the ground of the unfolding of phenomena. As to the suffering that comes with it, is that God's not, God is not the ground of the suffering that comes with it. Because the suffering that comes with it is not the suffering of the, of the disease. See, that's pain. The suffering is the devastation of these things. And the devastation comes from being exiled, from God sustaining us in the midst of the, of the devastating thing. So it's not like an answer system. It isn't like, hey, look, God, then how could God ever, like you can't get there from here. You have to drop down into, it's like someone asking you to explain what love is, or asking you to explain what beauty is. You, you can't define it. Beauty is not reducible to the sum total of the techniques by which artists make beautiful paintings, which is crafts. So the transcendence of beauty is the shining out through the details, but it's not reducible to the details. It's a certain, it's, I think it's an awareness like that. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Yet again, hard to see when you're in the midst of it. Yeah, I want to say something else too. If Eckhart were listening to us right now, I think Eckhart would say, I'll be Eckhart for a minute. Eckhart would say, you know, these questions are so great. Do you know why? These are path questions. These are the kinds of questions that people ask who are on the path. How can I figure out this? How can I figure out? That's fine. It's, it's really good. But I want you to consider something. What if what you're looking for isn't figureoutable? And what if you could get an answer to all your questions? It doesn't mean you even found what you're looking for. You just have a lot of answers to a lot of questions. And so how can I be delivered? Here's another question, but it's another different kind of question. How can I be, see Merton, Thomas Merton, to understand in the spiritual order is to know that we're infinitely understood. He said, how do we begin to pray? We begin to pray by reminding ourselves we belong to God. And so it isn't figuring out anything at all. It's rather stepping into being touched by the beauty of what Eckhart's saying and opening ourselves, asking God to help us to let that beauty have its way with us. Then as we at, the, at a secondary level, we ask these questions. And along the way, by the way, we do connect the dots. It does happen, by the way. And this is how we start. Uh, also, uh, quoting Thomas Merton on Eckhart, he says, uh, in, in the beginning, seekers on starting this way have many questions, which uh, questions. And therefore, they seek answers to their questions, which they should, by the way, like this. He said, but you get to a certain point in the search for answers to your questions, you realize that here all along, God's the one asking the question. 
And not only do you not know the answer to God's question, you don't even understand the question. That's detachment for Eckhart, see? That's detachment, see? The reins fall from our hands. And if we don't panic and run away and sit with openness, we're graced with something not explainable. And I think that's Eckhart. But by the way, look how clearly he responds to these questions. He was an intellectual. You know, he, he wasn't disparaging questions. He was just trying to, there's another subtle distinction in Eckhart. Amazing. <laughs> I like that you, you can be God and you can be Eckhart. It really, it's just like, just like falling off a log is so easy. But then again, what do I know? Because I'm making this up as I go along. Seriously. But here's the thing. I do think it's true to the spirit of what Eckhart is saying. I, I do believe that. I'm convinced that that's my sense that it's true. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. Question from Lynn in Germany, actually. And she asks, how would sadness be connected with the powers? Um, I would say that affect, the affect feeling, affectus like affect, being happy, sad, whatever. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the river of feelings that flow through us. So sadness is an aspect of the powers. It's the capacity to feel sad when something sad happens. You know, and it's to feel afraid when something scary happens. You know, it's the interconnectedness with reality because that motivates us, what can I do about this? How can I understand this? But then what Eckhart would say, well, that's true. Is it to, to, what's really what you're trying to discover is what's really sad? It's the extent the real sadness which motivates you to be freed from it. Is that the sad thing has the final say in who you are and what you're about, but only love has the final say in who you are and what you're about. So there's different kinds of sad. You know, there's the gift of sadness, of a kind of a grieving over absolutizing the relative and relativizing the absolute. And so we're to acknowledge the relative as relative. If it's sad, it's sad. It is sad. Be sad. But also, everything that happens has lessons in it. To, 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 to be liberated from the sadness of being caught and imagining that the final say is the close horizon we can't get past and how through detachment 
can I be released from that closed horizon and be kind of free from the tyranny of my sadness in my sadness? So, Jim, just following on from that, what is the place of personality and experience in terms of what we bring to our ministry and others when our aim is to become more empty of self? And that's a question from Liz. Merton called personality our, our exterior self. And it's real, but it's contingent. It is, it's dependent on a series of predispositions, attitudes, uh, nature nurture. Some of them are innate. Some of them are in response to how we were formed. And so when we know someone well, we have a sense of their personality. But we also know to the extent we love them, that they're not reducible to their personality, that there's a certain depth in them, that the deeper your love for them is, the more you're empowered to go past their personality, to see that depth is not reducible to it. Then you see something else, too. There's a certain charm to their personality because it's the configurations and the patterns of the depth of who they are. That's why I think when, when someone dies we love very, very much, like, what do we miss the most? We miss maybe the way they laughed, you know, but there was a certain way that they did things. Like the patterns of the personality were configurations of the mystery of who they are. So the problem is, the flip side is, we're nothing more to ourselves than our personality. And that, that reductionistic sense, that's, there's nothing more to me than that. And so Eckhart would say, it's an aspect of who you are, and it's the medium through which you discover in your personality what transcends your personality through awakenings, through quickenings, through however. Uh, but it's, it's uh, we're infinitely more the manifestations of those patterns. And then Liz is asking in terms of vocation, so when we go back to that idea of, of vocation as the place of manifesting this path of detachment, I guess the personality is the vehicle. Yes. In other words, let's say there's a calling. It can be any sense of a calling, whether it be marriage or a child or being a teaching grade school or being a therapist or an artist or a poet or a solitary, whatever it is, is that you're, you're living out fidelity to the calling and the configurations of your personality. And as people that I've worked with for a long time in therapy too, uh, uh, not only do I already know in advance kind of what they're going to say, I also know how they're going to say it because that's their personality. But I also know and the very act of saying it's something shining through that's not reducible to that pattern mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. uh, so uh, along the lines, it helps me to see that. Yes. And that idea of bringing that aspect of ourselves, trying to let that flow through us when we find that thing we're passionate about, that vocation, that the people that we love or the people we want to serve. Or that. That's exactly right. And there's another way to look at this too, I think. You know, there are all these... Endless personalities like this. But the insight in this also, and as of all the millions and millions and millions of people on this earth right now, not a single one of them is you. And of all the people that have ever lived, not a single one of those people is you. And all the people yet to come, not a single one of them, you're the only you there is. And even though your personality clearly has resonances with personalities that are similar to yours, because you can see patterns. 
but only your personality is your personality, the uniqueness of who you are shining out through those patterns. And it concretizes the mystery of the person. Yeah. I think you also get a feeling, I'm sure Eckhart was just, if we would have met him, like I knew Merton, you would have met him in his personality. You know, he had a personality. But you also, when you were sitting with him, it was very clear he was not reducible to his personality. That was so, and, and you would have known that Eckhart was clear about it too. He would also know that you're not reducible to it either. And the whole path he's trying to help you on is to discover that and, then, and live by it, live through it. Brings us back around to what you talked about in the first session where the illumined personality, like Meister Eckhart's, can just stay in integrity to the truth. Okay, so there's a couple of questions that came in on the theme of the Godhead. So we'll start with one of those from Denise. I always thought that the Godhead was just another term for the Trinity, but in your last podcast you indicated they are different. Can you comment on that? Again, there's another very subtle point in Eckhart. And it also has to do with, you know, there's the apophatic dimensions, which is the unknowability of God, and the cataphatic dimensions, which are the manifestations of God. And so the Godhead is a dimension of the unknowability of God. Because the Godhead is a, it's, um, it's like a boundaryless abyss. There is within it no distinctions. That's why the Trinity is not in the Godhead. Likewise, he says, there's no intentionality in the Godhead. The Godhead doesn't will anything. The Trinity does. Wills are good, so on. And so really, it's a mystery of, of, of infinite emptiness. And being infinite is boundaryless and beyond anything we can know about it. Because it has no content. There's no content to it. But it's fertile and pregnant. So he says it's, it's an infinite, eternal stillness. But the stillness is eternally in motion. And the motion of the stillness of the Godhead is the Trinity. There's another paradox. The stillness of the Godhead is welling up and manifesting itself as divine relations of knowledge and love. So the Trinity is God as divine relations. And the Godhead is God as a as beyond relations, beyond intention, beyond be giving itself in and as intention, in and as. And then likewise, in the Trinity, from all eternity, God the Father, God his mother, God his origin, is eternally speaking himself, as logos is the word, and is speaking himself as the word. The word then contemplates, he contemplates, God contemplates himself, herself in the word, and the word contemplates and the Father. And in the oneness of their contemplation, the love that emerges out of it is the Holy Spirit. So you get this interdivine interplay of love and knowledge as the intimacy of manifested emptiness of the Godhead. Then, from all eternity, God the Father contemplates in the word the eternal possibility of you. So from all eternity, uh, God the Father eternally, eternally, eternally uh, knew the possibility of you. And the, the generosity of the infinite is infinite. He, he created you as one to whom God could infinitely give the infinite, not just of the Trinity, 
that God could give the infinity of the ground to by making God's own ground to be your ground. This is why not only Merton, Thomas Eckhart says, to have one glimpse of God would mean you lined up on a stage and everything's, everyone's bringing by you elegant things, beautiful things, and you're looking for the thing that will be enough for you. A few centuries later, Eckhart says, I don't know what else you have back there. But to save you the trouble, I don't think it's going to do it. See? Because nothing that's infinitely less than the infinity of the Godhead is enough. It's a, it's a, it's a setup. See? God made us this way that it won't be enough like this. This then is through the Trinity, that is through our faith, God the Father, Jesus, through the Trinity, devotional sincerity. And then for some people, efficacious unto holiness, the God is Trinity, Jesus, who lived by the life of devotional sincerity shared with others and into eternity. For some people, their, their grace are touched by the quickening of the Godhead. They're touched by this enigmatic, paradoxical sense that anything less than the infinite nothingness of the Godhead will ever be enough for them, like that. And that touch, Eckhart's sermons are invited to speak to people whose hearts are, hearts are stirring with that touch. And when you hear him talking, you can tell you're not crazy because you know that he's talking about what's happening to you. And then he offers guidance in how to consummate. It's like a longing you can't explain for a union you can't explain. But you know that it's true. St. John of the Cross says uh, it's, 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 it's like a, a, a flame. You have no light to guide you except the one that burns in your heart that you can't explain. That's what all these mystics are saying. And so I think that's, I think that's that card and it's a way of sitting with that card. It's a big concept to get your head around. I only say bigger. It's transconceptual. Let me put it another way that helps me to say it. Let's say we're in a moment of, of, of oneness, like awe, in the midst of the beloved or a sunset or art or silence. But it's one of these moments where we're being awakened in oneness, like this. It's like unexplainably self-evident, this oneness. Then no matter how big you would draw a circle around what you're experiencing. Uh, no matter how big you'd make the circle, even if you made it infinite, the joy of what you're experiencing would breach the circumference of that circle and would do so effortlessly and playfully. It's what it delights to do because it's delightfully uncircumscribable. And anything you're even capable of circumscribing it will never put to rest the restless longings of your heart. And that's tone of Eckhart teachings, all these mystics, I think. Just a follow-up question from Carolyn. Can you distinguish between the Godhead and the Holy Spirit? Because this idea that where we listen to, we we have an experience of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, let's say, first of all, in this kind of scheme, this Christian schema, this Christian uh, mandala of God, the Holy Spirit pertains to the Trinity, like we were saying before, it's the love. I love this state saying by Thomas Merton, that God the Father is a Holy Spirit named Father. God the Son's a Holy Spirit named Son. But is it possible that when God unexplainably takes us to himself, to herself forever, the name of the Holy Spirit is our name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and James Finley, amen. 
See? And that's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit with unutterable groanings. See, groans. That we might yield and give ourselves over to the love that gives itself to us. And that's true in the devotional love of discipleship. It's really true. The, the come follow me, Jesus says. But what Eckhart is saying, the Spirit is groaning that nothing less than the Godhead will be enough for you. And it's, it's the call to the detachment or being liberated from the boundaries of anything explainable, anything with distinctions in it, anything. That, so in that sense, it's the Spirit. But it's the Spirit calling us beyond itself and beyond the Trinity because it is manifested, anyway, it's manifested yeah. emptiness. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Gosh. Who could we go to for these responses? Seriously, Jim, this is really helpful to, to be able to ask these very complicated questions and get some, some kind of sense of it. These are such great questions. We could take each question and I could respond. Then we could all sit together in silence for five minutes. Then I would invite everyone in this circle to say what comes to them, what that question evokes in them. And I would respond, we respond to each other, and an hour later, we wouldn't, still wouldn't do justice to the question. Then we'd say, next question, you'd ask it, we'd all sit for 10 minutes, and, then we, and that's why it's an arc. Uh, you know, it, I think that's the tone of it, really. Yeah, taking us deeper and deeper. And that's why people have been listening to this series from the beginning, they can feel the accumulative effect of being in this neighborhood because it, it, it grows on you as you go along. Yeah, it does, yeah. And now I think we have a voicemail question on the Godhead, and Corey, who's always here supporting us, is going to play that for us. Hello, this is a question for Turning to the Mystics. Thank you so much, James and Kristen. I really enjoyed this last season on Meister Eckhart. My question is, in the Christian mystical tradition, there seems to be a shared understanding through the doctrine of the Trinity, as opposed to monism, that there is, in fact, a not one, not two nature to reality. Reality is one and many. Um, the unity is the distinction, and the distinction is the unity. Um, so it's, you know, although I am not you, I am not other than you. Although I am not the tree, I am not other than the tree. Um, although I am not God, I am not other than God. My question is about the Godhead experience of consciousness. If this level of consciousness is beyond the Trinity, and there are no distinctions in the Godhead, does that mean when we reach this state, we look out at each other and the world, and we are no longer able to say, although I am not you, I am not other than you? Or do we retain the intimate knowledge of our unity and distinction through love, the not one, not two? How does it not fall into monism is my question. Thank you. Here, here, here's how I would look at it. See, in the Trinity, transubjectively, not one, not two. And yet, although not one, not two, God's one. Because Merton says his infinite simplicity admits no distinction and no division. So it isn't as if not one, not two, God's not one. It's an infinite oneness in which not two, not one, as the oneness itself. So there's the paradox of, of the Trinity. There's a story of my of St. Augustine, he was one of the fathers of the church who kind of forged this understanding of God as Trinity. Uh, like Romano Panikkar, he said the Trinity is Christ's mind. But sometimes God speaks of God as Abba, Father. He speaks of himself, he who sees me sees the Father. And I'm sending the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is Christ's mind. Trinity. 
And so St. Augustine started forging the sense of the Trinity in the church. And the, uh, the, uh, the story is that he's having a hard time with the Trinity. He can't, he can't quite get it. And he's walking along the beach and he sees a child has a little hole in the sand and he has a teaspoon. The child's going down and getting a teaspoon full of ocean water, coming up, pouring it in the hole. And he goes, gets another teaspoon of water, pours. He's watching them for quite a while. And he asks the child, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to get the ocean in this hole. And the child says, Augustine laughs, he says, you won't do it. And the child said, well, either will you ever figure out the Trinity and disappeared. See? And so the, the Trinity, it's, it's, a, uh, it's an impasse. It's meant to be an impasse, but in the impasse, the light shines through. And so Eckhart says, Sherman, Reiner Sherman says, Eckhart's talking about what happens to a person when they encounter the same, that everything's the same. And so it's not, it's not the one that says monism, because it's not an ism. It's not an ism, it's how do we de-ismize ourselves, turning things into isms. We, know, we need to do that when we form theological patterns. But it's, it's not even one, it's beyond one. We might think of it as an infinite zero, beyond, with no distinctions in it. And then from that arises the distinction of the Trinity. So it's, it's like that. It's very, very close to the Buddhist notion of emptiness. Actually, very close to it. Anyway, anyway that's my sense of it. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today and for all your responses to the wonderful questions that have come through about Meister Eckhart. Um, it's just very gratifying to hear the way people are processing and um, responding to the podcast. So, Jim, thank you for today. Corey, thank you for today. And we'll be back for part three of a, in our final session, question and response, and look forward to being with you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Centre for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.